Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Sitting here with Judd Dunham, a misfit to the fucking core, if I've ever seen one. Somebody I love with Thank all my heart. And uh, from Minnesota, we're sitting here live in Tamarindo in his beautiful apartment with his uh, beautiful new friend. And uh, I brought Judd on the, the podcast because he's an inspiration to me, to the core. Like, this guy has a work ethic. This guy has an intelligence that, like, you don't come across a lot in these places. I mean, you do... But to have it come together in a way that Judd actually puts his whole show together is something that is rare, in my opinion. And so I found it inspirational to bring him on because we're in a similar place in life, a similar place in business, and something that we get to share as you know good friends in conversation. So I thought my audience would really get a lot out of it if I brought him on and we talked a little bit about that. So welcome to the show, Judd. Thank you so much, Tapin. And wow, we're... Sweet words. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you, man. Like, you know, we've only known each other, what, like five or six years? And At like, least, though. So, when we see each other, it's always been really memorable. Right. Yeah. Like, we, we remember our conversations that we had along the way. And that's exactly right. It's special, and we go deep, and, like, we talk about things and feelings and things that, like... But our environment is such a big part of those conversations that allows us to, I think, you know, like, what we're, when we have, when I think about our conversations and where we've been when we've had them, it's not like we're in like some dark whiskey joint somewhere, and I'm like, we're looking at craziness. We are. <laughs> we are. And a visual freedom that I think you and I both appreciate and, and have a perspective on that, you know, a lot of, not a lot of people get to really experience in the way that we've experienced, you know, the ups and downs and like the hmm. all arounds that we go through. And, you know, you've come to an environment that, you know, no offense, like has a stigma behind it that isn't always good. You know, for the hardcore traveler, for mm -hmm. example, you know, they talk a lot of shit for, for yeah. the folks that have ever heard of Tamarindo, Costa Rica. It's a, yeah. it's, it's kind of like the Waikiki, if you will, of Central America. Ooh, where, that's strong. Where the Westerners have come here and kind of like imposed their sort of brand on a third world country and developed it in a way that, you know, some, some people would say isn't right. And mm -hmm. I don't necessarily agree with that, but. I like the fact that I get to experience it with you because you're somebody who's come down and embraced it and, you know, yeah. been able to balance a life here. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I think I know about that perspective that people have, especially the more, I guess, um, hardcore traveler, if you want to give them that moniker, but really, um, there's so much more to Costa Rica than, um, where the tourists are. Right. And so for me, I, I think, yeah, you know, Tamarino's enigmatic of a, a surf film that was made and follows that script to it like a movie. What surf film are you referring to? The Endless Summer, too. I mean, Robert August is a god here. But, you know, to me, he's, a, he's just a funny guy that you see in the coffee shop or whatever. So he's around here. town. Yeah, he's here. See him all the time. No Cruising way. around, puttering around in his old Montero and shaping boards and really open and friendly with everyone. I mean, he's 
he's the mayor, you know, he doesn't, he's the official ambassador, I guess. He built this thing. Yeah. And everybody should bow, should pretty much bow down to him for it. Yeah. You know? And I've met his family and gotten to take surf trips with him. And yeah, they're the real deal. So anyway, it's not just, uh, it's not fakery. You know, those are, those are, it's a real surf film. And one that so many of the, so much of the surf film we see now is, you know, based on that adventure, that getting after, like nobody did that to that degree before. It was just what black and whites from Hawaii. Right. And it's just a natural progression. I mean, inevitably, so yeah, like that comes down here, exposes it. You're going to get this event. Yeah. This is it, but this is just like a, in our world, Chapin, like this is this Costa Rica that I see that's just so genuine and, and not that this is disingenuine. It just is westernized mm-hmm. or North Americanized mm-hmm. to be more accurate. Mm-hmm. But it's still, um, there's still plenty of soul here. I meet great people all the time. So it does attract, um, a unique brand of person. And there's ties that bind us all here. I think you'd probably agree in your experience and living in Central America and various parts. There's, you run into kindred spirits. Let's talk about that. I mean, what have you noticed in the type of personalities that come here that you, you bond with and, and, and that actually stay, you know, and that can live it, you know? I was yeah. talking to Tyler or Taylor, sorry, a little earlier, and you know, I, I think she's got it in her. She can stay and and make a life for herself. Where we see a lot of people come burn out real quick. I've seen that. We've seen that to it to it to the point of losing their lives. And so, and I agree with you in the case of of Taylor. I, I said that to her. Like it's a thing you see. It doesn't mean they're gonna make it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't because for me, it's one year. Like it's. Sadly, I've probably not fostered friendships and relationships that I may have in the regular world because I anticipate that this person won't last. And then you end up with some kind of emotional hole from it, from losing a friend that you developed and everything and spent all this time with. And they're just gone. It's like any other emotional attachment, I suppose. So I think a lot of people that have been here for a while come off folks that are new and i knew this when i got here i paid my dues it used to be like a pissing contest how many years you got here it's, it's yeah credit and i laugh got. now especially at myself because i catch myself saying that like i've been here x years you know it's how you determine your social status in these places and it's I mean, lame people, it's lame it shouldn't is, do that respect it I mean, they, they, they do they but they shouldn't number, it, right? it, it shouldn't define you right hands down you're right but let's go back a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about how you got here because that's an interesting story as well. Like, Judd's history is something that, again, like I haven't encountered yet in Central America. You know, you got the classics, you got real estate developers, you got sailors, you got X, you got Y, you got Z. But then you meet Judd at a bar one day in Gigante where I met him. Or no, that's not true. I actually met a little earlier that um, at Kiki and Britain's house. But anyways, he tells and we me. we met Nicaragua as well when you when John came in. Right. Right. Okay, but yeah, Kiki and Brent was the yeah, original. Yeah, that was the first one. But, you know, like, again, Judd came in with a whole story I'd never heard before, which was, you know, growing up in uh, Minnesota on a lake, professional water skier, I think actually long jumper, is that correct, at some point? Slalom and jump Slalom and trick and jump. overall, like, and then to national level. Yeah, at a, yeah. At a national collegiate level. Yeah. Professionally long jumping and water skiing, and then... To make his way here and start life, like, that's just nothing I've heard before. So let's talk about that. Like, what was your upbringing like, and, and, and how did you wind up here eventually? Yeah, I grew up in, the, in an idyllic 
private little circle, the oldest neighborhood on the lake, which that I grew up on, and uh, it's a beautiful lake called Prior Lake, Minnesota, special place. And uh, yeah, kids in the neighborhood, the whole thing. But my next door neighbor had um, three kids that were national champion water skiers, and they were my babysitters. And so from like, I was always in the boat. And then, yeah, just kind of got thrown into the family. My parents didn't ski. My parents, we didn't own a boat until I was 16. I was already skiing in the top 10, probably in the nation, the amateur. Mm-hmm. We didn't, I was on the dock, man, like asking for rides every day, mowing people's lawns, especially my neighbors. And he was uh, an amazing mentor to me. His name's Roger Wall. Uh, wouldn't be me without this guy. And, uh, yeah, he drove me for like, whew, 12 years. Was my driver, my coach, my mentor. Driver meaning like drove the boat or like yeah. pushed you? And, uh, a lot. He was relentless. He was emotionless. Mm-hmm. He was just like, if I was out jumping the wakes and having a good time, it was like, nah, we're here to train. I was at like age eight, nine, 10, 11. And what does training mean? Like, are you doing tricks like training for your technique and your song and all that stuff? Like, it was serious hitting the jump ramp, like a big ramp, man. And it a big, big ramp at like seven years old. You know, the pressure, like, I mean, it was pressure. It was an amazing ski club. There it was these beautiful people that all enjoyed the water and skiing. It was a super social scene from a very young age. I was around adults that were having fun in the water and whatever. I just was. I was around really wonderful people, but this guy, Roger, was the central character always. And, uh, yeah, Korean War vet, child of the Depression, still rolling strong, still won the national championship in his age division this year at 86 years old in water skiing. Like, it's crazy. And so this guy was somebody that I would stand in his driveway every day, and when he pulled in from the office, I was, like, at attention. Geared up, ready to go. Geared up, ready to go. Boat was ready to go. Boat was shiny. 6 a.m. also, before he went to work, I was on that dock, pre-sun. And for like, man, I'll straight start bombing because I did that shit for years. Like, that was my, like, I worshipped this man. Wow, dude. And that took you to the collegiate level where you were able to then, what, parlay that? Yeah, well, eventually my old man... uh Bought this beautiful farm that had a private water ski set on it. And that gave me the ability to train at a different level. And so, yeah, at that point, it started to be like, you know, like, took fifth in the national championships. Then you place in the top eight overall out of everyone. And then you do that consistently for a number of years. And you're like, well, let's throw our name in the hat. Like, I know I'm skiing at least as good as that guy Mm. who's on that, who's getting a scholarship. But I was from the Midwest, and that was kind of a, a down. Like a lot of those guys that go elite are, are are Florida born and raised, or Texas, or something like that, where they have water all year. Like we have ice for many months, bro. Like you're in the basement, and I had to have like a thirty pound weight on a pulley that would go to my trick harnesses, so I could do toe tricks, which is like your foot's in a harness, your skis in the your foot's in the other foot's in the ski. And there's no fin, and you're two in seven twenties, five forties off the wakes, all that. But okay, it's no right head. There. Stop right there. We're going to talk about this. Anyway. <laughs> You're in your basement. Explain the harness that you've rigged in order to practice. So there's like a pulley, skin. like from this rope. Like, so there'd be a pulley down to like a 25 pound block. Okay. And it would come down to like something that sat about the level of a Mastercraft boat's pylon. Okay. And then I would have a lazy Susan with a piece of board over it 
that was sim that would just had um, grip tape on it, and that would simulate because there's no fins on a trick ski, and it's one ski, so one your hands are not touching a rope. Your one foot's in the line. You're wrapped up. You're tr- doing sevens, fives, off the wakes, threes, step overs the lines, and you know, all this crazy shit. And the only way that us Minnesota boys and I had a couple of boys that were like had gone national championship, but that's how they'd done it was dry landing, like looking at a wall in your basement, a white wall, and focusing on a cross that I'd painted that would keep my eyes like a figure skater and my shoulders level so that I could do these spins, these these maneuvers. And when the thing about that sport is that when you fall, you're done. So if you go out like on a trick pad, no, you're done for the tournament. You're out. Got it. So it's you'll drive 500 miles. Your parents will drive you there. You got hotel, all this stuff, and you've been training all week, and you're feeling the pressure. My parents weren't wealthy at all. And so it was something that was like a big deal. We made the sacrifices. I went, and it made me perform ultimately. It was the pressure. I've always thrived on like diamond-crushing pressure. That's Everything I look back on with pride is based on it. Mm-hmm. This is based on this thing. If you fall, you're done. You have 14 tricks to complete, two passes, 20 seconds each pass in front of ju- five judges. Incredible. And the boat's holding speed. And that driver's got to be on the money. Like that driver's jerking around. Like an eighth of a mile an hour change will fuck you up. So these are like things that don't understand. Like, oh, fucking water skiing. Yeah, right. That's what I thought until I met you. Super pressure. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was the turn on. Same thing, like, I would come in unseated to a national championship and end up, because my I hadn't had as many tournaments as the elite guys, I'd come in unseated, first guy off the dock, and lay down a devastating run, and then own, like, the next 65 skiers and scare the shit out of everybody. Hmm. So it was a sneak attack thing. It was just, like, that was our strategy as a family. To be undercover so and just like come out of the Minnesota wilderness and and just like dude's pressure like crush it as a water skier. It's individual sport. Like if you anybody where you had to like lock in and I think anybody would relate to that to a degree. You like, know, like you had a few big falls. I understand that kind of like took you out of the game. You were on the you were on the path to be a like. I was trying to get to that guy. level. I was like training with my idol. My absolute idol my entire life, a guy named Sammy Duvall, like the all-time greatest water skier of all time. I'm training with the guy. Like, I'm driving. I'm living next door to him with a guy named Russell Gay, who's still the world record holder in tricks, and his daughter just won the world, does the world record holder in women now. Anyway, so it's just legacy. Like, these, it's like that. Anyway, so I'm hanging out with this guy. It turns out, like they say, like, don't ever hang out with your heroes. Why do they say that? Who says that? Because they're not going to live up to your expectations. Ah, uh, okay. And he didn't? Well, he tried to hurt me. <laughs> by throwing you off crazy. He taught by pain. Like, uh-huh. And like, he would tell you once, like, you got to move that right ski forward if you're coming into the bottom ramp. If you're really going to, like, cut, like, a real probe and, like, really bang one out there, like, you got to get deep or something. And then you think you are, but mm, then all of a sudden he'll be like, look at his driver named Marco Bettacini. This guy's, like, this Italian guy. Looks like he drives a cigarette boat. And he looks over at you with his freaking Oakley blades and with the iridium and, and they're both like all Oakley'd out in this day, you know. And I remember like just like coming to the ramp, making the turn and being like, I'm so screwed. And then like locking in and feeling him just right at the bottom of the ramp, just 
bury a 350 horsepower engine at the bottom of the ramp, which just made it just go whoop and just made my right ski hang and high sides you essentially off of a six foot ramp of 70 miles an hour. Wow. And so you go up like 30 foot vertical in a half second, like it's 70 HEs, and then you land on your head, seven, like maybe 140 feet more. And what are the consequences of that? Like, you're drowning, you're out, you're done, you're and out, you you're, flat, you're done, out. you're done. You wake up in the back of a suburban, going to the hospital, and they tell you you have a really bad concussion, you shouldn't ski anymore. And that's what happened to you? Yeah, three times. And so that's when you hung up your skis and kind of like... Went out of the industry. You went in the industry? Yeah, I was given the opportunity to start as a rep in the Midwest. And I was like, tucked tail between my legs, dream lost. Back to the Midwest, freezing my balls off. Nine to five. No, I was I was still Schedule C. I was the independent rep. But there's expectations sales-wise. Yeah. I had a 12-state territory. I was 20. How long did that last for? Nine years. You did nine years as a rep, 20 to 29. Yeah. So then what was this big shift to where you all of a sudden one day dropped everything and somehow you found yourself? I saw big box retail killing small-time retailers. And these people used to let me sleep on their couches when I was 22 and had no money and living off commission and driving an 82 Cadillac loaded with samples. And around the Midwest, I'm in a car my dad gave me. And, uh, but living the dream. So you still loved it, like oh my god, man! Nobody's more passionate about that equipment than I was. I was like a full like I knew things about R and D and all that because of my background. Other reps don't have that athletic background in that in that industry. At least I didn't. And then, I mean, maybe now in action sports, more athletes get into it. I have some of my friends that are great snowboarders that are in the industry. They understand their product. Mm -hmm. They're passionate about it, and it comes through, and they talk about it effortlessly. So that was my strength. I truly loved it. And wakeboarding was burgeoning and we were developing wakeboarding. Like we were developing it from the beginning. I mean, I was on the forefront of it. And, uh, my friends were all those guys that broke it. And that's who I was training with and driving for because I had my water skiing driving time. I was good at driving wakeboard boats. Mm -hmm. So I got time driving all these gnarly pros and, and had a great time traveling around the nation and like the standard rep deal. <laughs> but the writing you saw on the wall and it was time to like, yeah, so it was ruining, like, it was ruining, it was, the, it was, the industry just ate itself. And then we've seen that happen in these industries, you know, especially in this one in particular that I cared for my whole life. Like, it was my, dude, I started water skiing when I was four, like, it's my whole life. And then I decided, I saw the reality of it, mm -hmm. like, the industry that drives it, and then the passion was lost. Yeah. And I saw that happening as a result of my involvement in the industry, that I was gonna, become jaded by it and i saw you know just the shift from service to volume you know like i want to go into a retailer and have them tell me why i'm spending a thousand dollars on a product not just like it's 20 percent off so then you know the shift changes you see it coming i mean it's pretty big jump to go from that lifestyle for a yeah like, i jumped into like to, to tacking up a car from which i understand Judd packed his car up one day and drove to Costa Rica. That, that was down the line about a few months. So I left the industry. I, I thought I would get in with all my retail doors I had. I had a large number of retailers that I worked with. I got into credit card processing for about six months and killed it. Never been more unhappy in my life. What a mess. So that was when I was like, enough's enough's enough. 
I'm not happy with this. I'm going to do something dramatic with my life. Why Costa Rica? Why'd you choose to pack your car up and go to Costa Rica? It just hit me like it hit me when I was sitting in Hawaii one night. And like six months later, after I'd been here once. Just became like this kind of calling that you said that. It was a calling. It was a calling. But not knowing what was going to happen. No idea. I didn't know one single person here. No idea whatsoever what I would do, except like, maybe I'll buy a bed and breakfast and, you know. So you had the kind of like cliche, stereotypical, like, so cliche. I'm going to come down and sort of hostile. I thought I was on point. No, it was cliche as heck. So, yeah. And then I had a great home and uh, on a lake. It was a lake I grew, house I grew up in, actually, and I owned it for a number of years. Um, it was a very difficult decision, but I sold it and I uh, never looked back. Day I walked out of that house, I never went back. And that and was so it. That's wild. So you packed your car up and drove through Mexico, sold the car, America. bought a truck, and was like researching online, like, so how do I order maps on whatever I was ordering maps on for Central America? Like, I got Rand McNally to the bottom of Mexico on my regular road atlas, and which is a pretty badass atlas, but. Then you're like, you start ordering the maps for Guatemala. You start getting like, if you feel like Indiana Jones suddenly, like the excitement was building. I was romanticized by the entire adventure. I knew, um, I knew I was gonna, I knew I had the where I would, I could will it to be. You know, I knew, I just knew that. I go, people fucking do it. People do this. And I found that out when I was driving through Oaxaca, Mexico, and I would look over, um, and I go, I bet nobody's, been through here in a Minnesota plate for a long time and I get passed by like a 1985 Dodge Caravan with Minnesota plates with current tags, a Mexican lady and four kids in it. No way. That's awesome. Humbling. Humbling. Absolutely. The adventure that was Yeah, you think you're like Mr. Adventure Guy Trailblazer. and really like this is how people live. They transport across countries and live in different parts at different times of the year and like these are revelations that you come upon on these journeys. Mm-hmm. So what will happen when you landed here? I mean, you came to Tamarindo originally, like that's what I was. Yeah, your what I didn't thought I knew it was like the first time I came here ever. I was like, my buddy had been here at a dragon like sunglasses sales meeting. He's like, we're going to Tamarind. You're gonna love it. Fire surf, everybody. And yeah, so when I got here, I was like, well, let's just start in Tama. We know it's good. Let's catch some waves and cruise. What does that mean? Like, just, like, you had enough save to, like, sustain yourself? Yeah, a like, bunch of money. Oh, yeah, from the house sale. And so you landed with enough money to, like, sustain yourself for a year, say. Years. Years. And and that's just kind of what you But then I I needed to have a boat. And so I went to go a boat broker. And I said, uh, you got any pangas for sale? This, that, the other thing. Oh, blah, blah, blah. I get to yakety yakking with this guy. And he goes... So what are you gonna do here? And I was like, I have no idea. Maybe a hotel. I don't know. He's like, so you're a sailor? I'm like, yeah, I sail. I'm a sailor, sail. Were you really though? Like you know, a sailor. Like a lake sailor. Okay. Was not an ocean sailor mm-hmm. at all, at all. But he says there's a catamaran for sale in um, Garza, down by Nasara, a couple hours south of where we were. So I love the truck, drive down there the next day, look at it. My first time I laid my eyes on it, it was like, done. What do you mean done? Buy a sailboat and do what? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, really, it was just, I was just enamored with it. Who isn't? They're incredibly romantic things. There's no, there's no more elegant way to travel. 
Why would you not think pretty quickly? I'm not going to lie. I did say like, well, 24 hours a day for $85 I had at a bed and breakfast or four hours for the same price on the freaking boat. I can drive a boat. I'm a freaking professional boat driver. That's what I do. Like, I'm a power boat. It's fast stuff. Mm-hmm. I've sailed a lot of boats as well. Come on. Entertainment. I grew up on the most social lake in Minnesota. Almost. Almost. Big up Lake Minnetonka. Mm-hmm. And ended up blowing up just like that, saying, like, I'm going to make this like a day at the lake on my private catamaran, which I named after my mother when I bought it. I was like, there's your luck. My mom passed away when I was uh, 23. So, yeah. 22. So, yeah. had you seen that model done here? Like, had you pulled in a tamarind and there was other models? No, no, no. There was one cat here. And then we went to Flamingo and there was one cat there. But they were doing, like, booze cruisy heads, like, cranking it out. I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to be quality. I wanted it to be a quality experience. And I feel like that was the niche. I feel like that's where you could assess value to a price by pushing the, the service and not the price. Mm-hmm. It's pretty basic sales stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's when the repping thing starts helping you, you know, like all that sales experience dealing with tons of different people and retailers and personalities. It immediately translated into this. And Tam- shaking thousands of hands right. over the last nine years as a salesperson. And Tamarindo had the, uh, the tourist. Tamarindo wasn't my scene. I was up in Flamingo. I was seemed smarter. It was prettier. It was chiller, more chill water. Um, I like the, it's prettier. Well, let's give some perspective yeah. listeners, please. Like we're in Tamarindo sitting here right now and, and Flamingo's 20 minutes away. So we're talking about, you know, a bay away. Eight miles. Eight miles. So it's not, we talk about it's it. All it's all beautiful. It's like a lifetime away. And it's like, <laughs> but in the sailing world of the market of sailing, we live, they are distinct worlds. Okay. And I've worked Tamarindo's world for years and I enjoyed it very, very much. They're just different animals. But yeah. when I was starting, I was there just to be clear. And so it was a, to, to me, it was, um, idyllic and, and it was laid out and I could see, I didn't ever ride on anyone else's boat to get an idea of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Like you'd hear through the grapevine, all they serve turkey sandwiches. Well, I came in with Johnsonville Broads. <laughs> First person to do hot food. And that was just like, it wasn't, it's not a hard thing, like, but it made a big difference. Made an impression and quickly got asked to take over the other catamaran that was in the bay the next year. So you kept yours, you sold? Kept mine. Ran the other one full time. It was great. And it paid me really well. And then, yeah, I fell in love and sold my boat to move to Santa Barbara. I thought that was the right call. Quit my job, my perfect job. So you left Costa Rica and moved to Santa Barbara, California. It's not, it's not an ugly place. I don't know if you've ever been to Santa Barbara. <laughs> it's not, that's true, but I actually don't even know this story. Please elaborate. Like, what, when and when did this happen? So, yeah, I met this girl here. She's from there, Montecito girl. And we, yeah, we, great for like a year and a half or something like that yeah yeah and then she was like i have to go i can't live anymore kind of like what we talked about earlier like some people just can't last some people can't last so so you follow her to montecito seeing like seemed like all right well i'll go to cali i'll go to captain school i'll sell the boat sell the boat for more than i bought it for felt like it it was a it's a win Go there where you think there's $100 bills blowing down the streets. No, they're sucking out of your pocket. This <laughs> is <laughs> an illusion. Yeah, did that for six months. And then what? Came back here? Mm-hmm. Moved back to town. But 
had to make a stop in Minnesota because I was broke as. So you had to recharge. I mean, had to recharge. I went one. through all this loop that I cleared. So you cleared a bunch of loot from your house, and now you lost it. It's gone. It's not like gone. It's like years down the road. This is like now we're up to like year five. Bro. Okay, but still, like you were working, making money on the on the cat. Everything like, was great. We lived very well. Okay. Everything was great. So I didn't like broke ass, but pretty broke. Mm-hmm. And like went home, came my house, and then within like a month, I was like, made the phone call, find me a boat in Flamingo. The next day, my great friend calls me and says, "There's a." 38-foot Beneteau, it's a year old. These guys need someone to run it. Come take it. Came down. Two weeks later, excuse me, two weeks later, I came down here and took it over and just started operating privates, like, by myself. And started clicky-clacking right away. Very soon after that, my um, an acquaintance of mine from home came down and was, like, ready to invest in a catamaran. We jumped into that. I started looking all over the world for that boat. Ended up going to Boca del Toro, Panama, and looking at a boat, falling in love with it. Her name is Hibiscus. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, started this adventure with these people. And that went on for like three years. Mm-hmm. And then, so yeah, you just start rotating through this stuff. So that eventually all goes down. And then uh, my girlfriend at the time, uh, we hadn't been dating that long. This is like, I think I'm pregnant. And then it was like, I'd quit my job at that point too on principle. Like a week before for my hibiscus. And uh, so it was like, get going, Mm -hmm. which led to Moonstone. And Moonstone is what? What is Moonstone? Moonstone's a Sunreef 62, uh, Sunreef catamaran. It's a luxury brand. It's about as luxury as you can get. And uh, my idea was to bring ultra luxury to Costa Rica for the first time with about $400 in my bank account. Yeah, let's talk about that real quick because you have a sequence of events that have occurred at this point with boats and and you know opportunities and you're I'm under the impression that you went from like your first boat costing name it what did the first boat cost first boat cost eighty five thousand eighty five thousand second boat units or second 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 boat was hibiscus that we were in and that was two ten two ten and those were funded by who and what. The first one was funded by me. The second one was funded by private money. The third one, and owner finance. And owner finance. And the third one now is Moonstone. The third one is not Moonstone. That's gonna, that required me raising roughly $400,000 in cash. And it, uh, it cost ultimately what? $1.5 million. So this is interesting to me because, again, like I love this story because, you know, Judd <laughs> coming down here with, you know, not much except for just the ambition. Has turned over, turned over multiple different enterprises, all in the sailing industry that has led him to now acquiring a $1.5 million luxury catamaran. That's beautiful, man. That's a big accomplishment. Yeah, it's a pretty proud moment. How'd that go? It went pretty good. At first, it was really good. Um, just the, the thought of getting into it. Yeah, you feel the pressure, but my son was born and two weeks later, I was on a boat. Meaning what? To like bring you, just, you couldn't like participate in your son's like upbringing. No, it was just it's just a lot going on. Like I think I had to try to retake a master test with the U.S. Coast Guard a week before he was born. Thankfully, it passed. So I had to fly to Minnesota, come down to Costa Rica, have my son, fly to Puerto Rico, then USVI or then into British Virgin Islands to finish this deal that's taken a year. And innumerable meetings, like, 
to talk people into giving me $400,000 in cash based on my idea with no, nothing hard, just strict passion. That's all it was. That's all it was. It was, it wasn't lies or smoke show. It was just, I really believe in it. And this is why I have this practical experience in speaking to me this way. People bought it. And then uh, I went and got that beautiful thing and sailed it across the Caribbean to Panama. And it was five days with six of my best friends at sea and 20-foot seas at times, and usually about 15, no engines, just on sail. And we didn't speak a word to one another. We didn't need to. We were all disconnected. It was the best thing ever. I mean, this for you, it sounds like the million dollar idea, the cash out, like this for like five years. That was the plan. It was a three year marization. This is my mistake. This is where. Let's talk mistakes, dude. I like mistakes. I like hearing people's mistakes. So, yeah, I made a whole bunch of mistakes. The first mistake I made. uh, What is the first one? I mean, I can't really say the first one. One of the one that comes to mind was being desperate, like desperate, like not ready to do anything. Like, this is, people say that a lot. Like, that's what it takes. Like, you're rocky. It's not that easy. You know, there is a price. Are you ready to pay it? You're sure? Because it can cost you a lot. It cost me a lot. A lot. So, was it worth it? Maybe. I mean, so you're, you're, you're kind of coming across as like, maybe you were too ambitious. Like, yeah. Yeah. It was because it was on Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about bullshit, but. Yeah, overestimated, underestimated the depth of it and overestimated you know, what the cost would be for sure. Okay. Underestimated. It sounds like, yeah, so in the end, everything kind of went south. Really bad. Fast. Okay. Yeah, so. So where'd you end up? But it started, let's, 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 before we get to the doom and gloom, there's some really big bright spots here. Please like, bring it on. So, <laughs> we had to cross a huge hurdles when we got it. We get the boat here. We didn't have, I needed to pay like a 200 and some thousand dollar tax bill. To, bring it into Costa Rica to get it flagged in Costa Rica so that it can work here. Got it. The first one ever. Costa Rica is a paradise. The first yacht. luxury yacht with a Costa Rican flag ever. So, he, so yeah, miss some things in the passion of this. Mm-hmm. Like you miss how government officials might view this. They're not going to see you as some crazy fucking gringo with nothing that's putting everything on the line. They're going to think you must be loaded. That's insightful. Yeah, I like that. Like that was an issue that cost me six months. Six months. But when we initially, when we initially got the boat here, understand, I still, this was not a done deal. I still was on the like, I still had major. I still had to come up with two hundred and forty thousand dollars when I got here. Now, 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 or everything else is gonna fall apart. There's gonna be a lot of really disappointed people that put a lot on the line for me. People that I cried for. Like to give you the money. Please give me this money. It's heavy. And when you get in deep in that situation, you feel such personal responsibility that you uh, lose sight of things that may be more important. These are costs. What family? Family. Yeah, because you had a you had a son just been born. Yeah, yeah. He was on board with me all the time. Yeah. You know, but yeah. The whole everything was just terrible because I was so freaked out. Like I had so many people calling me every day, being like, "Lawyers, I had forty thousand in legal in one year." Like in Costa Rica, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like this kind of thing was just nonstop rolling, and I'm trying to like keep it up. It's really like you can't have two masters like that. Like 
There's my piece of advice. Try to keep your masters to one. Masters? Things that you that are your ultimately your master. Like the thing you're best at. No, like your boat. That's a master. That thing owns you. Okay. Your family or a woman or something like that. That person is like that level of importance. Like, and I not to equate them to like a material thing. It's not like that. But there's two masters. That, like these, both these people are equally, or both these things are so insanely important in your life. And you think you're helping one by feeding the other, but really you're just selfish. Maybe you're not realizing the cost before it. the register rings it up. You're just sitting there in the line with it, kind of like looking at it. You're like, ah, it's all coming together. You get the cost and it breaks you. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of what it felt like. It took me a long time to process it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, in the process of that, I ended up having all this great success in the business. We had like all these super crazy famous people. All this stuff was going on. Like we're doing an excellent job. All these crazy clients are coming to us. Uh, we are making money, but it was too late. You know, we were deep. I mean, I had a forty-some thousand dollar a month boat payment. You know, like this is crushing. Yeah. When you're working, when you're you, to run the if I was just running the business, like yeah, maybe you could pull that off. But you're running, managing a yacht, captaining, managing crew, and everything. All the supply. You're the guy going to the store, and ordering all the specialty stuff, like making sure that things are done right, cooking bread from scratch. Like, you can't, you gotta weigh that stuff, man. Like, you can't do that. You'll, and believe me, I'm a hard working person. Like, I'll go to the mat half. <laughs> so why not give up? Why not go home? That's just not this. I don't ever do. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Who does that? People do it all the time. I mean, you know, these people. Places like this chew people up, spit them out. They go back. I thought, yeah, I mean, who doesn't? I felt like that here. I've counted change here so many times I can. But I've also been like sitting around looking, like, does this happen? Like more often than not, my life is filled with like complete surprise and amazement. So there's your, it's it all okay, you know, like, but then, you know, when you have then, so this thing falls apart and it came down like, like businesses come down and you're dealing with sharks and crazy, like, you know, people with, that you think are just like, you must have no soul. Mm-hmm. But that's not it. That's business. There's your lesson. I was looking out for yeah, yeah, like own this, own this, own this lesson, own your mistakes, own the destruction that you've caused, own it, own it, learn it, and pass it. You know, because that's the best thing you can do, right? Like that's it. So what have you learned, dude? I mean, I learned to be humble. I feel like Job. Yeah. Yeah. Super humble about all. But then I know that I'm going to come, like, there's a line and it's still there and he'll be back, but. So the desire is still there to, like, create something uh-huh. new. Because, I mean, where are you at now? Let's talk where you're at now. Like, today, Judd. Where's Judd at this day? This super day? happy. Yeah? Super, super happy. Yeah, after, like, beginning everything, like, what I would call, like, basically Hiroshima a year ago. You lost it all. Everything, everything man. Down to my car. Everything. Everything in a day. In a day. In a day. Without warning. No two weeks from now. No, like run this through the court system. I made the choice to like, to circumvent a lot of pain for a lot of people where I could have probably stretched this thing, done all kinds of things to make a bunch of loot and stack it and say, you know, later. But I knew what was up. and I'm at a point in my life where I don't really feel like having regret, especially after what I'd just been through over the year and a half, almost two two years before that. You know, like, 
I was running Redline every day. Like the anticipation of becoming a father, watching that happen, but not really like had it. I had money coming in through a finance deal for the boat prior to. So yeah, it wasn't like I wasn't bringing in money, but I was worried. Like if this deal doesn't happen, like I'm going to have to go to Miami or bring everybody there or something and work in the U.S., which is not on the radar. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that's really hard to imagine. I've tried and this is my home, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Now, like, I'm running this great boat, just a captain. So you're back. You're back. I'm back. I'm on a 50-foot Veneto on this boat called Serendipity, and it's incredible. Swinging the bat again. This is, time, tr- like, turn number four. Yeah. And we talk about this. Like, I I, bring, I bring this up because, it's like, you know, you're here. You, you haven't struck gold yet, per se, in the sense that you can, like, cash out, like, kick. No, no, but not that. But, yeah, I don't look at it that way. I mean, like, you... No, I don't, but I think it's a perspective that I like to try to give where it's like you're here because yeah. you belong here in a way that you can't go back. You you don't feel like you can go back to the States because... I don't feel like I fit there. I feel like um, it makes me sad to be there. Yeah. I don't like, like, well, yeah, I mean, sure, you're nostalgic about the U.S. It's a beautiful country. It's amazing. Like, the culture is rich, but for whatever reason... You know, I have a nostalgic view of it, and I feel like that, that that's that I don't see that there anymore, and it mm. makes me sad to be there because mm. of it. You know, like, I'm missing United America. Mm-hmm. And you're, like, finding yourself feeling most confident and comfortable in these sorts of environments to where you can make a living, yeah, a comfortable true. living, survive, support your family, because now you have a family, little boy. And, yeah. and this is it. Like, I mean, you're comfortable and happy here. Yeah, I'm absolutely happy here. Uh, that's great. Oh, um, it's, it's home, you know? And, and, I don't, people ask me that question every day on the boat. Every single day, it's one of those questions. Do you see yourself here? So, yeah, if, do I consider this? Oh, my gosh. I, mean, I sit there looking at amazing ocean all day sailing on a boat and wondering, like, well, yeah, of course. And people give you, like, these... Like, that's humbling to me because people do give you, like, do you realize what you have here? Like, you realize what your life is like, and it makes me, like, it's heavy. Because you do realize it. Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. I realize it a lot. You know, like, it's super special. I feel things out there that, you know, you can relate to, but not many of us have had the the, the ability to, to, to let go the way we've been able to in certain ways. I mean, Right. I mean, how does your family feel about it? I mean, they're obviously... You've been here, what, now? I don't know. 15 like, years? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they approve or disprove, but I know that they're okay with it. Because you see them how often? I think three or four times a year. You go back like or they come here? Like half an hour. Okay. So there's that... And we're in contact, you know, like... If there wasn't Skype and all that, you know, it'd be really hard. It'd be harder to do a lifestyle abroad. Mm-hmm. Mm, so... Yeah, it's easier with technology, right? It's way easier, yeah. I mean, having a conversation like this today was incredible. I love it. Yeah, it was touching. You drew. You drew for an hour. You didn't just draw. You drew well, and it was completely engaged. It was pretty good. Yeah. And uh, she seemed like you had been there yesterday. Right. That is a blessing to have that, because I know guys like you, guys like me, like, we're family men in a lot of ways, but yet... For me, for example, like I can't be near my family because I can't vibe with the environment that they live in. For but, some reason, whatever it may be, like I just don't fit in. I need to like 
spread my wings and then be in environments that fulfill me and then I find myself most engaged in. You know, but is it the loneliness that you like? I don't feel lonely. I feel lonely back home. Do you feel unfulfilled or lonely? Back home? Yeah. Yeah. Both. Yeah. Unfulfilled and lonely back yeah. home. Yeah. I mean, Gosh, I love my family and, and they are the lights of my life. So when I'm with them, you know, I, that, that feeling does leave, but only when I'm engaged with them. So unless I'm living in their house, like, I can't function. I need this. It's a strange thing, I know, and I've tried to get into it with, you know, past episodes and talk about repatriation and, you know, that feeling we get when we just feel disconnected, but yeah, dude, it's it's real. It's a real thing. Like, I don't feel like I belong. I, 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 that is exactly, um, that's right. That's what it is. God bless us because who wants to belong to that mess? <laughs> I mean, fair enough though to them. Like, it, I mean, not, not, I mean, <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying. I, I know the sacrifice, the end of it. Not to demean this, this family thing. Family is super essential in my life. It's, it's huge. And it, as I mentioned earlier, when I lost my mom, that I would have never done this without that happening in my mm-hmm. life. But nonetheless, I don't understand. I just don't relate. Like you said, you don't fit. So when you think about society as a whole, when you're outside of this bubble that we're in, mm-hmm. right, we may be totally wrong and off our rockers. That That's super plausible. But I ultimately don't think we are. I mm-hmm. think we're more in touch with how we were meant to be mm-hmm. as humans than people in, in the societies, other societies are allowed to be. So what would you say, in your opinion, um, it takes to make it here? Like, what's the, the makeup of an individual hustle. who's an expatriate who wants to come live? Makeup. Um, you have to be humble. You have to be polite. You have to be open to things not having any logic, mean, or measure. You just, that's how it is here. If you can have those kind of tenets and I think an open mind to learn um, about the place that you're you're in, including the language, key don't come here thinking you can just speak English all the time. It's not polite. Especially if you've been here for a while, I think. If you're new, I think people give you an incredible amount of latitude, more than you would ever see in many civilized countries, um, to be patient with you. It's a beauty. One of the great things about Costa Rica is, is the people. I say it every time. Number one, the people. So with that, you have to respect that. And with that comes your culture and how you're going to go about your day and all that. If you can get your head around all that, then you might be, you'll fit in pretty darn good. And I think that probably applies anywhere you go. If you can get in touch with the heartbeat of this place and why it is the way it is and like that, right or wrong, because there's always going to be both, just like anywhere, then yeah, you got a shot. But you got to hustle here, period. It's a full-time job. Full-time job. This is not for the week. This is not for someone who has devils on one shoulder or both. Because everything that you ever thought about freedom is different here. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want. And you're probably not going to get judged for it. That may sound wonderful. There's a double-edged sword on that. And I've seen so many people go, go south here that it's like, it'll, it's, it's, I got crazy sad stories. So if you come down here with a positive attitude, oh, one last thing, keep it simple. Like to me that 
People come down and they don't do any research. They just come down and just throw money at something. Look at the guy you're talking with. I showed up and looked at a boat in a bay two hours south of here. You know, like, people do that all the time and it burns them usually. And I was able to grit it out. But if you don't have that, and I wouldn't have had that without that guy in my life when I was a kid, mm-hmm. where I was forced just to put my head down and carry rocks and stuff. Like, that's, you have to have that grit. Like, if you've been kicked and beaten and still are strong, you might have it what it takes. What it takes to be here. Mm-hmm. Those are the people I generally like. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, I can summarize it better than that, my brother. <laughs> that was beautifully said. I want to really thank you for coming on this episode and yeah. expressing, you know, your your humble upbringing here. Like, it's like been fire, a pleasure. It's been a ma- story nonetheless. And pleasure and pain. It's been great. Cheers, my friend. Thanks Cheers. for joining me. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.